0: This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.
1: You're listening to Panel Borders on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch and this is Resonance's monthly show about comics, graphic novels and sequential art. In today's show, I'm talking to a couple of creators who work on anthropomorphic titles, which is to say funny animal comics featuring characters that are animals who behave like humans or are halfway in between. In the second half of the programme, I'm talking to Norwegian cartoonist Jason about his various graphic novels, such as I Killed Adolf Hitler and Werewolves of Montpellier. However, in the first half of today's show, I'm talking to cartoonist Richard Short about his ongoing narrative featuring the melancholic cat Klaus. The latest graphic novel featuring the character, Hawaii man Klaus, has just been published by Breakdown Press, and I'm talking to Richard about the history of the character, how it ties into his history of previously living in Hartlepool, the character's success in Europe, and his plans for his next graphic novel. Obviously you're doing a bit of a promotional tour at the moment for um uh yeah. Klaus. A tour from my uh, from my uh, front room in Walthamstow. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's the way forward. Um I've I've been trying to piece together the history of the Klaus comics and it seems like you've been published in a number of different places. Uh there was the No-Brow collection um, Breakdown Press have done a couple of uh, a number of single issues that they've collected for this book, and then you've had yep. various uh, incarnations of Klaus uh, printed across Europe. Um, so I'm just yep. trying to kind of put them into some kind of order. Uh, <laughs> should, how- I, yeah,
0: yeah. should I? Yes, should I? I can give you a potted history of the uh, <laughs> of the, the publishing history of it. Um, so it, I mean, it started really. It didn't start until I was uh, almost thirty. So I think the no broad collection which was the first collection uh, came out when I was uh, 29. So what's that, a decade ago? Uh, And that was a fairly short collection, but it was sort of grandly printed in a hardback uh, design, in a a hardback cover. And I think there was only maybe about sort of 80 pages or something like that, was it? I don't know, Uh, but that was the first one. Um, The next one came out with Breakdown um, and that came out a, a couple of years later um and then since then there's been various books uh, with breakdown uh, various uh, sort of uh, in iteration where it was klaus magazine so there was it was just sort of an annual uh, magazine um which came out and had various sort of stories uh in it and a letters page and sort of guest strips um and things like that and then it's been a couple of years uh because of lockdown and also because of other things since uh, the last one came out uh and then this is the new sort of bumper collection uh which is uh, 220 pages sort of unpublished uh strips uh which follow a, a a loose a very loose story but um yeah over the course of the sort of 220 pages it does sort of progress from a starting point to a <laughs> some kind of end point <laughs> yeah but uh, but yeah if you're so i would say that if you're there's no there's no need to have read 10 years worth of klaus to, to buy this one this is this sort of stands alone and obviously breakdown are very keen uh, for this not just to appeal to the people who've bought all of the other books over the last 10 years so yeah. um
1: yeah Well, it's interesting because reading um, the book, it actually feels like it's a collection of existing strips because the way that you approach a lot of the pages um, are as a kind of traditional gag strip that you might um, read in one instalment if it was serialised regularly in a magazine or a newspaper. But as you say, um, a kind of a story unfolds as you read the entirety of the book. So it's interesting that there's this tension between... Uh, the strip working a page at a time and also as a longer narrative.
0: Yeah, I think that's important with it with a strip. I think um, you know, when you look at those sort of Schultz paperback collections, mm-hmm. um, until Fantagraphics reprinted them all in chronological order, those paperback collections, I don't know if they do, but they seem to just sort of to be a grab bag of strips from from all sort of across the years. So they're always in that sort of peak period, um, but they're all you know they're all from different years, and there will be uh, certain strips that follow on from each other in you know sort of like a week's continuity story. But um, yeah, they they, uh, they sort of you know they're not chronological. And I think even though this book uh, has was written of written and drawn over a couple of years, I think. Ideally, you should be able to take a Klaus strip from, you know, any point in the 10 years that I've been doing it mm. and just be able to read it sort of satisfyingly by itself without knowing the whole backstory of, of, of everything. So I, I try to approach every strip as if, you know, this might be the first strip that someone's reading. Mm. Um, but also, you know, if you have read... 10 years worth or five years worth or just, you know, just a single book, then it is, uh, yeah, then you do get, um, you know, you, you do benefit from the, the more you read, the more you benefit, because the more of the story, you know, and the more you can be invested in it, but you can read a single strip in it. It should still make some sense. Mm. Um, yeah. And, and obviously with, with every strip, the ideal is to get a sort of, to get a laugh from each individual strip. So you don't want, yeah. Um, So I approach every strip like it's on, you know, it should be a a satisfying joke in itself, uh, Mm. even if you don't get the full, (laughs) I was going to say the full resonance, but uh, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Even if you don't get the full sort of uh, weight of all of the emotional baggage behind every strip,
1: you still Mm. get the joke. But I, I just found that interesting that it sounds like you've approached the book as if it's a collection of like a daily strip even though it was created just to be uh, produced as a book.
0: Yes. I mean, yeah. I mean, until recently um, I did a sort of, uh, yeah, someone said to me recently, uh, it's just like, oh, it's really funny. You're the, uh, you know, you're the one of the few people I can think of who's actually still doing a strip, even though it's a sort of redundant, uh, <laughs> basically a redundant type of comic. Uh, and, and Klaus has, it, it has appeared in, well, no, it hasn't appeared daily, but it has appeared monthly uh, in an Italian magazine. An Italian magazine printed t- 10 strips a month um, every month for a year in 2016. But that's the closest Klaus closest, has closest come to actually being, uh, you know, uh, sort of carried in the way that uh, it maybe should be. Mm. So, so I've been sort of like ploughing a furrow where I've been drawing basically a, a daily strip uh for for 10 years uh but it never actually being daily <laughs> uh <laughs> it only being uh collected in sort of you know annual collections mm-hmm. yeah but um I don't know I quite I like the discipline of doing a daily strip even if it's not sort of quite daily but I like the discipline of doing a, a daily strip um even though I haven't got uh I haven't got a venue for my for my mm-hmm. daily strip
1: well, it's it's unfortunate that we now live in an era where um, the budgets for newspapers have been cut considerably, and it's the cartoon pages that have gone from a lot of publications. Um, but in an ideal world, would you have liked to have seen this daily in a, a Hartlepool newspaper or a, a national? <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I <laughs> when I grew up, weirdly,
0: um, before having any concept of the sort of wider world, when I lived in when I grew up in Hartlepool. Uh, in the Hartlepool Mail, uh, the Hartlepool Mail carried Andy Cap on a daily basis, hmm. and I thought because Andy Cap was set in Hartlepool and they had, uh, I suppose you know Hartlepool accents or at least rhythms or it looked like Hartlepool. You know, it was it was obviously set in Hartlepool with Hartlepool based characters. I thought I didn't think twice that that might be a national strip. I just assumed that that was our sort of local purpose strip. Um, and then when I realized it was also in the Daily Mirror and also you know <laughs> since then that it's it's actually this sort of uh, this big thing yeah it's quite it's quite sort of uh, that's quite strange and uh, I did you know when I started drawing it when I was maybe 26 something like that uh, I didn't think oh you know this is going to be the next handicap and let's get this in the Harlepool mail but maybe that's a sort of I think that might have been an unconscious, uh, sort of driver to me doing a, a, a daily strip because if you, yeah, if you grew up in your um, in your sort of immediate uh, environment is reflected in a sort of national daily strip. That's yeah, it's not what it's it's not something that everybody can say really. And I'm surprised that there aren't yeah, I'm surprised that there aren't a huge number of uh, yeah uh, cartoonists coming out of Hartlepool who've been inspired by uh, uh, Andy Capp. But maybe yeah, maybe handicap doesn't inspire it. Sort of puts people <laughs> off. <laughs> I know that I know that my sister and my mother aren't exactly enamoured with the handicap strip. So um. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, well I, I mean, I have to admit, I don't know an awful lot about um, Hartley Pool as a place, except for your kind of local <laughs> uh, legend, the Hartley Pool monkey, uh, about uh, a monkey that's treated as a human and put on trial, and I wonder if that kind of treating of animals as humans was something that um, inspired this strip or whether it was just a coincidence.
0: Yeah, I mean that story is that story is ridiculous. Um, it, it's it, I think the origin of that story is that uh, a folk singer in the next town along from Hartlepool started a started singing that song as a sort of satire on the stupidity of people from Hartlepool and obviously they sort of initially they rallied against that uh but i think as it as it went on and it became the most famous thing about harlepool they sort of embraced it so uh that that the sort of the, the monkey hanging the napoleonic era monkey hanging from uh, a noose is now the symbol of the town <laughs> which is <laughs> which is ridiculous i mean having a mascot of your town being uh, a a monkey that you uh, that you mistook for a french spy and hung in the town square yeah. is it's, it's not really something that you should proudly embrace but uh yeah i don't know that's
1: <laughs> but, but animals having kind of human aspects the the partly full monkey didn't kind of feed into your strip at all it was just i mean
0: i yeah i'm not sure i started a funny animal strip just from a sort of uh, sympathy with that with that one monkey <laughs> uh, <laughs> i thought yeah let's give that monkey his story um, but uh, I I didn't actually. There's been a, a French. There was a French adaptation of of that monkey story, and I can remember on the Northeast News, uh, them interview after that book came out. They were interviewing people from Hartlepool about what they thought, and they were saying, "We man, this book makes us look stupid." And it was just like, "There's no way you can tell that story and make you not look stupid." <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the fact that it's a made up story. You know, sort of regardless of that. Um, but no, I think. I think that the reason for doing animals is because I suppose you want that element of, and I think Schultz had aimed for this as well, but I only found out sort of this week or last week when I was reading that collected um, interviews book that came out with Fantagraphics last year, but he wanted that element of fantasy. And I think you can uh, split strips sort of not down the middle, but there's a lot of strips that either um have that level of fantasy where, you know, they're not concerned with the daily grind of, of actual people, you know, having jobs and actual relationships and having to pay the rent. And you achieve that by having the children like Schultz uh, does or Calvin and Hobbes does, um, or, you know, various other strips, or you have animals like Pogo and Crazy Cat. So I think either having animals or children uh, allows you to sort of, you know, have these philosophical, emotional storylines without having the, the the extra baggage of these characters having practical real-world concerns mm. or having, you know, things like uh, political ties or jobs or, you know, families to an extent. I mean, none of the... Um, you, you sort of... If you had actual humans in these strips, you, you might be thinking, you know, don't they have jobs to go to? Don't they have children to look after? Or... You know, why are they all sort of jobless bachelors? But when you're, you know, reading Peanuts or Crazy Cat or Pogo um, or or these other strips, you're not thinking about that. You're just thinking about, uh, you know, the sort of philosophical questions or the sort of emotional questions or the the jokes that they're raising. You're not Mm -hmm. distracted by the fact that these people don't seem to be capable of earning a living. Uh, or (laughs) also when you're drawing animals you don't have to like you don't have to set them in towns you don't have to you know you don't you don't have to draw buildings or anything like that Yeah. yeah trees and trees and beaches are much easier to draw than uh you know high streets and cars and things like that
1: yeah yeah well i was going to ask you um about your influences but you beat me to it because i saw uh the influence of pogo in there with the large range of different kinds of animals interacting with each other and also kind of the leitmotif of Crazy Cat of um, a creature from one species having un- unrequited love uh, for an animal from another species. So w- were Pogo and Crazy Cat both in the mix? Um, they, they weren't originally. I mean, Crazy Cat more than Pogo. I haven't
0: read a lot of Pogo actually um, but uh, Crazy Cat definitely, definitely was. Um, although um, I think when I started it it was it was probably schultz and then to to a lesser extent not the content but um you know the sort of the form of of evandicap really which were probably the biggest influence um, i mean i like i like crazy cat a lot more than i like andicap but <laughs> but uh, but yeah they were sort of the original influences uh, i didn't read much crazy cat growing up only got it um, got into it in my sort of mid 20s maybe when i was getting into to comics um but i think that um the thing about the sort of the unrequited love and the cross species um you know sort of love interests uh, are just a sort of shorthand really for uh for sort of you know these characters being in love with someone who's unsuitable mm. um you know they all have they all sort of have thwarted desires uh, whether that's to be uh you know poets or dancers or artists or You know, great lovers or travelers or anything like this. And I think if you know if they were if they were in love with someone, you know, a character from their own species, you would be more. (laughs) It's less, you know, it's more expected and less obvious why it shouldn't work out. But the absurdity of a of a cat being in love with a a creature which is you know sort of twenty times bigger than him uh, and uh, couldn't possibly work out. Uh, then that um, yeah that sort of just adds another level level of absurdity to it
2: really.
1: Mm. One of the ongoing themes of the comic, I guess, is um, melancholy and uh, worries about whether what you're doing with your life is enough, and you know, kind of like fear of death. I mean, these are all kind of quite weighty themes. But you mentioned um, Schultz, and I guess these are also the same kind of themes that would crop up. In peanuts and so you know although we think of a lot of newspaper strips as being quite light there is this kind of underlying theme of uh, gravitas that kind of goes hand in hand with a lot of these strips
0: yeah I think well I've I've just I just finished that uh, book of interviews collected interviews with Schultz and I think it's, it's a really good book and there's lots of stuff that I was i mean it's pretty late in the day for me to be reading those interviews but i was reading them uh and just thinking i've i i can not remember reading that before but that's you know that that really resonates with what i was you know sort of trying trying to do and and what i what i think and and one of those things is schultz basically just saying that um his was the first comic that um that just allowed you know that particular the particular strip to to deal with anything that came into the author's head so you've got all of these characters and they're just sort of, you know, more or less just ciphers for Schultz's own uh, preoccupations. And mm-hmm. sometimes that was, you know, sort of death or, um, you know, sort of obviously unrequited love uh, and um, not making the best use of your, of your talents and, and all of this kind of stuff. And I think just, yeah, if, if any sort of normal person uh, sort of uh, was con- contemplating doing a strip, then they would think maybe not that particular set of preoccupations, but they would think, well, that's the kind of stuff I want to put in there. So it just allows you to put, you know, if if I'm thinking about something, so now I'm, you know, sort of forty at the end of this year, I'm thinking, oh, I'm, you know, I'm getting getting pretty <laughs> getting pretty old now. Like, shouldn't I have, yeah, you know, done something with my life and and also, you know, uh, yeah, you, you don't feel as sort of fit as a fiddle anymore. So you know, that sort of works it works its way into the to the strip um you know and then there's other things you know there's you you can basically put sort of anything in there because it's a very um you know it's not a fantastical setting like a traditionally fantastical setting but it's not it's not a real setting with real characters so you can just sort of pin anything on those characters really Uh, nothing's going to feel too outlandish when you've set up a basically an absurd premise like a bunch of depressed animals living uh in a <laughs> in a sort of post-industrial nature reserve uh yeah so i think that that's the same with yeah and, and schultz mentions in that book as well he said uh, you know a few years down the line he didn't even think of his uh you know place as the real place anymore where the characters were interacting with each other but it was basically just it was in some kind of, you know, sort of netherworld. It wasn't a real place anymore. There were no adults. He stopped drawing. He basically stopped drawing buildings as well. So I think, yeah, that's that's a good point to get to, where you can just feed in anything that you're interested in um, and you can just pin those, pin those things on your characters. Mm. But obviously, when I say pin them on your characters, you, you still want the characters, I suppose, to sound convincing. One of the criticisms of Pogo is that it just... It was just very wordy, and the characters were just sort of, you know, mouthpieces for whatever um, the author wanted, uh, political points he wanted to, to to get across. And you don't you don't want to get to that point. You, you still want them to seem like, you know, you still want them to seem like distinct characters, uh, and to be, you know, if not convincing, then at least, um, I don't know what I don't know what the word would be. But um, yeah, <laughs> you, you want them to seem, you know, you want to, them to seem themselves and that they're not just being, you don't want to see sort of the author behind the characters talking through them.
1: Mm. But at the same time, um, I've read other interviews with you and some of the interviewers attempted to ask you whether the strip is autobiographical. I'd kind of <laughs> phrase, I'd phrase that a different way and say perhaps does the strip occasionally work as therapy? That you can work through issues on the page that you're kind of worried about at any one time.
0: Yeah, it, it, I mean, it, it definitely does. It's, I mean, it's definitely not autobiographical. I mean, like, I'd be, I'd be in a ditch somewhere if it was autobiographical. But <laughs> you know, but like when you, when you finished your, yeah, when I finished, uh, uh, well, when I used to, you know, sort of work and work in an office, and you'd finish a day at the office and get back on the train at Liverpool Street and be going home. Uh, yeah, you could, I could certainly sort of sit there and look out the window and think oh well you know this happened today or I thought about this today and how can I fit this into a full panel strip that'll be both you know a sort of joke but also you know <laughs> accurately reflect sort of the, the thoughts I was thinking but yeah I think so um, and I often think like what happens if Breakdown stop publishing this they, they say like oh you know sales have dwindled to, to only you know you've only sold a dozen copies of the last book Richard we're going to have to finally pull this title and I'm going to be I'm just going to be sat in my room just sort of knocking out a daily strip still because uh yeah <laughs> short of uh yeah short of daily therapy which could be quite expensive and it's probably the best way of
1: working through working through thoughts about things mm. um Although one aspect of the strip that I guess is slightly autobiographical is that Klaus is seen uh, as the author of a comic occasionally.
0: Yeah, I've, I've, it's just a recent decision, really. So I, after eight years, I gave him a creative outlet. So now he's uh, sort of doing these amusing drawings. Uh, I don't think they're fully comics, but he does have a sort of uh, some a set of animal characters that he uh, puts his thoughts and feelings into now,
2: yeah.
0: uh, which it seems to give him some uh, therapy. So, yeah. Hmm.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's interesting that thinking of how uh, the characters are anthropomorphized, that um, obviously Klaus has sort of a, a humanoid aspect to him. But from time to time, when the animals in the strip act more animalistically we see kind of a version of them which looks more like a traditional animal. So I wonder if there is some kind of like avatar going on in terms of understanding the strip, that we're actually experiencing everything through Klaus's eyes, the way that he sees himself, as opposed to if you put a mirror in the panel, all of a sudden you'd see an ordinary cat looking back or something.
0: Yeah, I think, yeah, I've, I've tried to sort of play with that a bit so that there's no sort of, there's no one answer to that uh, mm-hmm. because the horses apart from me not really being able to draw horses sort of <laughs> look like, sort of look like horses apart from their legs are, their legs are sort of, you know, the um, the female horses uh, legs are, are, are really women, like human woman, women's legs because horses legs are very difficult to draw. And I thought it'd be funny, funnier if they had sort of semi uh, human legs. Um, and yeah, the, the sort of the male horse, the stallion has stubble. Um, so, you know, that's a bit, but, but, by and large, they look like horses, right. uh, but a lot of the other characters yeah, they walk around on two legs. Um, They—they—they're just like you know, sort of, they're, they're basically like naked Donald ducks. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they, they, I sort of, uh, I, I sort of play with that in terms of how animal they are. A lot of them sort of will talk about themselves having animal urges. Um, and um and things like that so i think when it suits them that they are more animalistic maybe uh you know they can make excuses for themselves uh and you know some of the things that they do um yeah are more in line with their animal characteristics i think they're all acutely aware of them being um you know them being the animals that they are Mm -hmm. so the moles will talk about well this is what a mole does And, you know, the ducks will say, you know, well, Aylesbury's are this or that. And they will sort of self-justify themselves on the basis of what kind of animal they are. Um, But, yeah, and then a a lot of the other time they're just, uh, yeah, they're just like little humans. They're just little, you know, Peanuts characters or whatever. But it's it's nice to be able to switch from one to the other. So have them sort of more or less human and more or less animal, depending on, you know, whether whether that's going to be partic- you know whether it's going to be funny to have them suddenly become much more animalistic yeah mm. you know and and it's not clear as well and I don't really want to make it clear how their sort of society works because um you know all of the, a lot of the moles have jobs <laughs> and maybe some of the rats have jobs as well but it's not clear what kind of economy they're serving by having jobs uh, the moles are sort of policemen and actors are sort of uh, sort of the the policeman and, and the court system and you know the the judges are moles as well but then characters regularly go to prison and, and and seem to sort of not spend very long in prison and then you never see a prison there's sort of the interiors of various buildings but you never see the exteriors of buildings mm-hmm. and I think if I was going to sort of sit down and and work out uh, a plan of this and be like where where are these buildings and what economy is going on and and why suddenly is there a row of shops or, a, or a sort of a, a condo going up? Uh, I'd, I'd given myself all sort of sorts of problems, but I just try not to. You know, they they, they come in for a strip and they make a joke, uh, and then they sort of disappear again, really.
1: And also, I like the way that quite often the strip is quite poetic, um, both literally in terms of like a poem uh, that you can read from one panel to the next, but also having kind of like a lyrical quality, you know, thinking about the seasons and thinking about ageing. I guess that was something that, you know, you wanted to bring in to certain pages and then go back to, you know, gag strips on others.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think, um, yeah, it's good. Uh, um, it is good to, to, to have a mixture. I never think, I never think in terms of, you know, like, oh, well, we've had, uh, we've had two sort of poetic, fairly pretentious strips. Now, and now we have to have a sort of uh, a sort of a sight gag. But um, yeah, I do try to sort of um, mix them up, and, and and maybe luckily I have as many uh, you know pretentious ideas as I do uh, very sort of <laughs> uh, very sort of crude ones. So, um, but yeah, I do. I mean, a lot of the characters, um, a lot of the characters uh, write poetry. Uh, lots of bad poetry. Uh, a lot of the others. Um, are aware of well there's a sort of mixture of characters who are aware of writing poetry and talk about poetry um, either to themselves or to each other Um, and then there's other ones who will sort of talk in verse so when they're um, you know when they're giving you an insight into their uh, sort of uh, being and states and emotions or they will either be talking in verse or sometimes they'll be sort of singing a song so there are various sort of, uh, poems and, and sort of, sort of, sort of songs uh, within the book. Um, but that just comes from uh, me uh, reading a lot of poetry, really, and just really liking poetry and wanting to put it in there. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a few, I've heard a few things. People say, oh, I sort of, I don't get those ones. And it's like, there's nothing to get. It's just, <laughs> it's just, it's just rhyming you know it's not like it's no more complex than the other ones it's just uh it's just um the panels are rhymed so yeah I think it's it's just a very um amusing thing for me to do as well I think I, I personally enjoy uh sort of sticking that in mm. uh and yeah I, I hope it's taken for what uh, I intended it to be a sort of uh, amusing color rather than uh, me looking sort of high-flown or trying to be impressive or anything like
1: that (laughs) you just mentioned um someone having an opinion on one of the strips and also that the klaus magazine had a letters page um back in the day so is it nice to get feedback from your readers and see how people are um understanding the strips
0: would you know what i i wrote every letter on that page (laughs) no Richard short Short, short. I know because I would ask people for questions and they're actually not everyone but generally their questions were quite you know uh you know it was just like what's your favorite Dan Klaus book and stuff like that and I'm just like oh man come on I can write better than that so I did uh (laughs) but um yeah I think I have used there's been a few that people have said to me in person um I think there's one that I did in there was one that I used in Klaus magazine where it was someone who accidentally told me he hated the book. He told actually a crowd of us that he hated a book at Elcalf, which was No Browse Festival in East London. Mm. So um, he just went on a sort of a monologue and listed all the reasons why it was rubbish. Uh, and uh, he was just stood there right in front of our table. Oh, no. Not thinking. Maybe the person sat behind this book is the person who wrote it. <laughs> uh and he only stopped he only stopped slagging slagging uh it off uh when someone came up and picked up the book and was just like oh a new klaus book excellent i'll buy one and then he was saying oh what a, what a, i can't remember what what are these words i think i've made a terrible mistake <laughs> <laughs> nice <laughs> but yeah i do i do get a bit of feed i do get a bit of feedback there's there's other ones that I've people have said since then, uh, which I haven't used. So that's that's a shame. Maybe I'll maybe I'll just have to come up with a sort of a freestanding uh, letters page in future. Mm. Uh, but it is. It's always it's always strange to to hear people's feedback um, on stuff because you don't like actually as a cartoonist or, or maybe just me, you you don't get people's feedback that much. You know, you get when the book comes out, you get you'll get the odd review. Um, and then you'll you'll get the odd interview uh, but like you know interviews I suppose are a few and far between uh, and I always think I wish I got interviewed more so I knew what people thought about the book or or just allowed me to think about my own book you know by mm. sort of them saying stuff so yeah there are stuff that there's constantly stuff almost everything that someone tells me about the book is, is a new sort of insight for me and that is that just shows the sort of paucity
1: of responses i've had so far <laughs> really, really. <laughs> oh dear but um like i mentioned it's also been published in europe presumably translated into different european languages could you talk a little yeah. about that i mean uh, how uh, multilingual are you <laughs> uh yeah i'm i'm not multilingual
0: at all i'm uh i'm depressingly monolingual um and uh yeah i've relied on relied on others so i think um yeah, it's been translated. Um, there's been a French collection, an Italian one, um, a, a Russian one. Um, and then it's been out in various other magazines. It was, um, I think I mentioned it was in an Italian magazine for, for a few years, uh, originally monthly. And then they got sick of it and did it every few months. <laughs> um, but then, yeah, it's been translated into Taiwanese and uh, German. Uh, someone used to do Turkish translations just for their own blog, which uh, was quite funny. So it's nice that they took uh, the time just to translate the whole thing and re-letter it in Turkish. Uh, but that never made it into a, a full book. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been, I mean, that's its one of the, the best things. I mean, when I started, I never thought I would have a book out in, in all of these languages. So it's, uh, yeah, it's brilliant. But obviously it, it, it comes with its own pitfalls I think for the French translation I only had it very late in the day maybe two days before it was meant to go at the printers so I was sat there with Google Translate um, sort of cutting and pasting all of this new text into Google Translate uh, and it was like what was it a 200 page book so that's um, we had 200 pages times uh, two strips per page times four panels so every every panel I was Trying to Google Translate, um, you know, in in the in the two nights before the book came out or went to printers, at least. <laughs> uh, and so I just I yeah, had a massive list of a massive list of queries that I had to send back to the publisher and said, "Did you mean to to say this? I, I'm not too sure you followed that one, but
1: yeah." Well, I was yeah, going to was ask about fun. that whether you know certain kind of idioms and jokes and quotations translate easily or in cases like that if you then have to have a dialogue with the translator to find a local equivalent that would be understood by an international audience
0: yeah i was i was really lucky actually that uh, when it was in uh, linus my translator uh, valerio steve uh, steve uh, he uh, we'd met him before he started translating it actually so i was sort of friends with valerio before he started translating it Um and I knew he liked, I knew he liked the work and he is very um well, he's, he's pr- pretty much an Anglophile. So he had a good s- sense of what I was aiming for, but even then he used to translate 10 strips a month for the, um, for Linus, the Italian magazine. Mm-hmm. And every month he used to come back to me with, you know, sort of copious queries about like, what does this word mean? Uh, I mean, which is, you know, fair dues. I mean, how many Italians are going to know what how a man means and things like that. So, but uh, then there was other ones being like, uh, you know, just sort of humor based. Like, you know, if, if someone, if someone doesn't fully get a joke, then how are they going to translate it? So they, you know, um, yeah, me, me sort of trying to explain jokes to Valerio um, and then Valerio would be like, Oh, I thought it might have meant that, but I thought it might be sort of more complex than that. And I said, like, no, just that was the joke. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So when, so that was, you know, ten strips every month and there were so many queries with that. So so God knows how the French book came out. Because um, yeah, if if the Italian translator had a query about, you know, every panel um for the Italian version and I sort of successfully answered those over the course of a couple of years, then, you know, the, the fact that the French one was done within a week uh makes me worry slightly about that one. But uh <laughs> who knows. <laughs> um, and then the Russian one, I've just had to completely trust. I've just had to completely trust that they've done some kind of job with it because, uh, yeah, the, there's no easy way to even sort of start to 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 uh, tra- sort of Google Translate Cyrillic um, for 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 a book. So I I just didn't bother with that one. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, if any bilingual Russian readers are listening, perhaps they could get in touch and let us know. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: If if uh, yeah, if anyone's willing to do that, I'll send them a copy of both books, and then they can uh, they they can tell me how good or bad it is.
1: Yeah, <laughs> nice. Um, a long form project that you're working on uh, for future publication is about the Berlin Wall. Um, is that going to be oh, populated? Oh, it's, it's not. It's not
0: it's, okay. um, it's about Hadrian's Wall. Sorry.
1: Oh, okay um but yeah. it, it, is that going to be populated by humans or animals
0: oh that would that would yeah that would be uh, humans okay. uh, yeah so it was um obviously being from the northeast well not obviously but i i, I really like Hadrian's wall and that it was the, the roman wall built um i can't remember when it was <laughs> that doesn't bode well for my book does it but uh <laughs> first century ad <laughs> Yeah, so it was, yeah, it was built by, it was built by Hadrian across um, Northumberland, basically, between England and and Scotland. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I've just always been interested in that. And I just, you know, I used to go on sort of annual walking holidays across Hadrian's Wall and used to always be just really sort of, I don't know why I would be proud because it had nothing to do with me, but just sort of, you know, just amazed that this thing was in the northeast and was just still obviously there um yeah I just used to be sort of uh, worn over by it every time um and I've I've filled a, a, a at least one notebook full of notes on Hadrian's wall um and I would like to do something it would be very different to this though I think once you've got a when you've got a four panel comic strip you've been doing for 10 years and you put every sort of uh waking thought for better or worse into it and it's sort of it's quite difficult to go to another thing where it is much narrower and you're thinking well, now I'm going to do maybe like a kids' comic about Hadrian's Wall, uh, mm-hmm. because you're not you're not putting everything you think of in there. You're you're much more focused on uh, what the subject is and what you can put in there as well. And, and it's a bit of a, I suppose it's a bit of a, a strange thing with you know with Brexit as well. You don't want, yeah, it's you don't want. I don't want to do a Hadrian's Wall book where it's just going to be read as some kind of um, you know sort of parallel to either. Uh, you know, um, uh, empire or Brexit, or you know, sort of taking back your borders or anything like that. So, um, it, it's difficult, but yeah, so it's, it's difficult to work around that. You get a lot of stuff about Hadrian's Wall, which is just about sort of the American, the Americans, uh, you know, uh, or the British Empire or the American Empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I would like to do a book about Hadrian's Wall on its own terms, um, but it's just trying to get. Yeah, it's just trying to get sort of a story that's interesting enough to sustain sort of my interest in it as well. Mm. Um, it's much easier doing, when you're doing a daily strip, you're just thinking, well, what idea have, have I had today? And there's no sort of fetter on that, because you can just stick that in your strip. But when, you, when you've decided to do a story about uh, a historical uh, period, then you have to think of some, I think probably uh, for some Uh, way to sort of structure that really
1: Mm. um otherwise it's i suppose it's just here, the horrible Uh, (laughs) (laughs) and you said it's going to be aimed at a young audience uh
0: i think i think so yeah Mm. i mean i've read quite a few novels about Hadrian's wall and i haven't finished a single one of them (laughs) i I don't really they, they seem very um i mean it's not that they seem you know macho it's you know the the world of Whatever it is, fourth century uh, soldiers uh, mm-hmm. is is obviously a very masculine world. So, um, but yeah, I, I would I would like to sort of. Um, th- there's no way, personally, I could write something like that. So um, I, I would have to take a different tack, and maybe maybe one way is to do do something you know aimed at uh, a younger audience, um, or maybe just another way is just to do a sort of. Um, just a much more absurdist sort of um, kind of take on on it, rather than that sort of quite serious take. Um, yeah, mm. I mean, I, I mean, I have been publicising on my Instagram and things like that that I've been doing this for years uh, and never never come up with anything. So when people mention about it, I think, oh shit, I shouldn't have mentioned that thing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting though, because visually. Um, the Klaus comics look like they could be aimed at kids until you find the odd swear word that makes it very definitely 15 certificate. So...
0: Yeah, until you so find like... A, until you see the uh, silhouette of a horse as a wreck.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting that you've used some of the iconography of comics for younger readers, but now actually you want to do something for that audience.
0: Uh, yeah, I would. Uh, but... Um, I suppose the easiest thing to think is like, oh, I'll do this for kids. Uh, and having not been a kid for ages, uh, I have no idea what kids are into. So I think it's very easy to think, oh, I, you know, I'll do a kids book. I'll just, I'll just simplify it. But um, yeah, I think it's maybe the hardest thing to do. It's probably much easier to do an adults book because you know you are one. Um, so yeah, may- maybe um, may- maybe I could do yeah, but then you know, you do a sort of a a book about the Roman wall and, you know, your your obvious audience would be, you know, I don't know, maybe your obvious audience is kids. How many Mm -hmm. adults are interested in a Roman wall? But, you know, it's like dinosaurs. (laughs) Um, But, um, yeah, I I, I don't know. That's still... But the the characters that I've been sort of drawing very much look like uh, they could, you know, sort of be kids' characters. Uh, And I think maybe it would be it would give me a way in to try to do it. If I had, um, if I had a, an audience in mind, um, and it would maybe ensure that I, I keep it sort of silly and light, uh, and enjoyable rather than trying to stray off into anything more serious. Yeah.
1: Interesting. Cool. Uh, well, I think that'll do nicely. Um, thanks for giving up some of your evening to, uh, to chat about your work and, um, It's great that your uh, Klaus comics are in a new digestible format and hopefully we'll find a new audience.
0: Yeah, hopefully, yeah. The the first one for ages, that'll be available on on Amazon or Waterstones and all of that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's nice to get a barcode again after (laughs) years in the barcode
1: wilderness. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Okay, well, thank you very much. Cheers, thanks. Thanks, Alex. Hawaii Man Klaus is available now from Breakdown Press. And you can find more information about the graphic novel, as well as all the other titles released by the publisher, by going to breakdownpress.com. And to keep up with Richard Short's latest work, why not follow him on Twitter at r underscore t short. In the second half of today's show, I'm talking to Norwegian cartoonist Jason about his various graphic novels featuring humanoid characters with animal characteristics. Jason's graphic novels cover a variety of different genres, from bittersweet romance to horror and time travel. And I caught up with Jason when he was visiting the Lake District a couple of years ago for the Lake's International Comic Art Festival. You're here amongst uh, international creators from around the world. And possibly for some Brits, uh, it's the first time they'll have had an opportunity to meet you in this country. How do you find um, fans from around the world? Does it vary much from uh, country to country?
2: Uh, no, there's no big difference. Um, it's, it's, it's the same wherever you are.
1: Mm. I guess your uh, your comics in particular have a universal appeal. Um, while you deal with different genres, you've done comics that are sci-fi, that are film noir... Um, or just kind of slice-of-life um, observances, there seems to be a real sort of interest in humanity and um, kind of the absurdity of interactions. In terms of kind of like wider comics, it does feel that maybe the work that you do might uh, have a wider appeal than some other creators. Do you find that at all, or are you just, I guess, happy doing the work and hoping that it finds an audience?
2: Um, well, do you do the comics... For someone, you want to find readers and you want your comics to be read. Um, But at the same time, I guess in some way you are the first reader yourself, so you have to find something you find interesting. Mm. Um, So I try to do different stuff. Um, Done silent comics. Um, Genre comics, like science fiction, horror And then this, the last one, uh, is my first uh, autobiographical book.
1: Mm, Yeah. You were first published, um, I believe, at the age of 16 in a magazine called Kronk. Um, Was it then apparent to you from an early age that you wanted to be a cartoonist, that you wanted to sell comics uh, to make a living, if possible?
2: No, that was just a hobby, because in Norway there's... um, There's no big tradition for comics. Mm. Um, It's very difficult to make a living doing comics. Uh, It has changed somewhat the last 20 years. Um, There are people who do uh, strips for the newspapers Mm -hmm. and some who even make a really good living doing that. Uh, But at the time, uh, in the early 80s, It was just a hobby for me, um, and a way to make uh, a bit of money to then buy more comics. (laughs) So I discovered a lot of comics at the same time as I was trying my way, trying out different styles um, Mm. of comics in this uh, magazine in Norway.
1: What sort of other strips were in the magazine that you were being published alongside?
2: Um, there were some articles, some single image um, cartoons, and then some short one or two page uh, stories. But there was um, a theme mm. for every issue which you got ahead, and then you you made whatever you wanted and sent it in, hoping that it would be published.
1: Mm. And then after that, uh, you went to art school. What kind of um, uh, mediums were you working in there? Painting, illustration, the whole sort of uh, gamut?
2: Um, well, I went to um, first a private art school, um, yeah, trying out painting, working in larger formats. Uh, and then later I went to the National College of uh, uh, Art and Design in mm. Oslo, studying uh, illustration and graphic design. Mm. Um, so the plan was to become an illustrator and then still have the the comics as sort of a hobby um but to make my living as an illustrator.
1: Mm. Were you doing comics on that course or was it somewhat discouraged by the tutors?
2: Um no there was a a a 3 week uh, course in comics uh the third year but um Yeah, it was mostly uh, illustration.
1: Hmm. Mm. When people look at your books now, uh, there seems to be very much a recognizable style that you do. The clear line style, the sort of use of anthropomorphic characters, the use of four panels on a page. That's obviously um, a way of making comics that you feel very comfortable with. But how long did it take you to find both that style and that format?
2: Uh, It took uh, a couple of years. Um, My first book was drawn in a realistic style. Hmm. um, In the classic French 48-page album. Uh, And it took me a a year and a half to Hmm. do. And I wasn't really that happy with the result. So I started trying out different... Other styles, um, more simpler or more cartoony styles, including the the animal characters and mm. um, that sort of fits uh, the kind of stories I wanted to tell at the time um, mm. more like fables maybe and, um, there's something more universal I think mm. about the animal characters everybody can identify with uh, with those characters mm. and I guess
1: because you have a recognizable style and this sort of cast of animal characters that you keep reusing in very different genres in a way that makes it easier to deal with different genres to do something that's horror to do something that's science fiction because people have i guess a hook that they can recognize and then whatever flight of fancy you want to take them on there's something reassuring about having um, a similar form a similar formula in each book
2: um yeah uh, <laughs> uh, Yeah, I don't know what else to say But um...
1: <laughs> You've done a, a variety of books of different lengths um, some of them collect short stories some of them are uh, full length graphic novels when you have an idea for a story do you know initially how many pages it's going to take uh, to tell that idea or in a way does it develop as you develop the story?
2: Um, now I, um, I always I don't write a full script, mm. so the stories are always uh, improvised. Um, mm. um, so often, if I have an idea for a beginning, uh, I'll start working on those pages, and then as I'm working on those, I'll think, well, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen to the characters? Uh, so it's um, sort of uh, finding the story as you're working on it. Uh, and then usually at some point, midway or something, I um, I might get an idea for an ending uh, and then work in that direction.
1: Mm. And like I said, you've worked in um, a huge variety of genres. Um, in terms of comics and perhaps books and films that you enjoy, have you always been a consumer of a variety of different genres? Because certainly, you know, when we read your books... And there are references to classic film noir or sort of classic science fiction. It suggests that you're particularly uh, well read, that you have a real interest in sort of classics of different genres.
2: Well, I try to get my ideas uh, from other places than comics. Mm. Um, the way I draw, the Lin Clair style, is very in tintin mm. and energy. Uh, but for stories, I try to. Yeah, I, I like to watch movies. Um, old movies from the twenties up to the seventies or eighties. Uh, silent films, um, film noir, westerns, um, science fiction, horror, and um, and uh, yeah, to use. Uh, it's a lot of fun, I think. To to there's playroom in those uh, genres and you can follow some rules and then there's also a lot of uh, freedom to put in whatever you want Hmm. um, in those stories.
1: And while your style stays the same, um, from book to book, sometimes you'll use heavier blacks, sometimes you'll use colour. In your latest book, um, On the Camino, um, there's much less uh, black. Instead, you use uh, sort of classical uh, comic book dots Um, for shading was that a conscious decision that because this was in some ways a very different book for you because it was autobiographical because it was much longer did you think oh maybe I'll use a different style of shading as well
2: Um, well it's it's a more intimate uh, story like a a journal so I wanted Mm. to uh, that should be in black and white Mm. and um I often started walking in, in the morning before sunrise, mm. uh, so I put in the, the or mm. just to indicate that it's uh, night, um, just to get the difference. Mm.
1: It's interesting that you spend um, long passages in On the Camino kind of by yourself on the road and you have encounters with reoccurring characters that you meet from time to time. But it's interesting that sort of sense of loneliness where you're your own company and occasionally in the pages of the comic you sort of act out little scenes from movies like you do an impression of Marlon Brando in a couple of frames. But its I I don't know if you did that in real life while you were walking but certainly it's interesting that you're alone in the pages of the comic but you have an audience with people who are reading it. In a way were you thinking of well I might be alone right now but I'll have company when other people, when readers accompany me on this journey at a later point.
2: Uh, well I brought um, I wasn't sure that I, I was going to do a book about uh, walking the Camino but I brought um, a sketchbook and mm. a notebook to make notes and about uh, 10 days maybe into this, uh, the walk I was pretty sure that it was going to be a book so I had um, the reader in mind somewhat mm. Um but it's uh, walking the Camino, you do the same thing every day. You get up in the morning, you walk, you mm. find a hostel, uh, you eat dinner, and you talk to other other walkers, and you go to bed, and then the next morning you do the same thing. So it could be a bit um, repetitious. Um, so, yeah, I also wanted to put in images I had in my head, um, mm. Some from movies, uh, but uh, just to also create some variation. Um, uh, yeah. mm.
1: What sort of size do you work um, in terms of the original artwork in comparison to the way at least we see it uh, reprinted in the English editions?
2: Um, well, the um, pages with the four panels are drawing a A4. Okay. Um,
1: and obviously there's a mixture of comics which are silent and which are scripted. Um, you spoke about how it's semi-improvised. Do you have to plan the silent ones a bit more? Because you know, if you're telling a joke in a script, you can almost let it develop as you go along. But if you're planning a silent comic, perhaps it takes a little bit more ingenuity working out how the gag is going to work visually over a number of panels.
2: Uh, it depends on the length. Uh for short stories um I yeah I, I'll know the whole whole story but for longer stories um that's also improvised mm. um, and just so far it has worked But uh I've thought of an ending. Um but of course it can happen if you work in that way at what are you going to do if you don't find an ending? Is it all wasted? Or, um, But, yeah, so far it has worked out.
1: Mm. Obviously, On the Camino is autobiographical. But in terms of kind of ideas that generate stories, how often do you find yourself writing a short story where in a way it's wish fulfilment? Because obviously, you know, one of your sci-fi books is... Um, traveling back in time and trying to kill adolf hitler there are other ones with characters who uh have affairs who kind of like murder obstreperous people is any of that based on kind of like secret desires or are you actually a really nice person
2: <laughs> i'm a really nice person <laughs> um now the hitler one uh well, it's um i think i started i wanted to make a story with a time machine mm. um and then it's sort of like the obvious uh, choice. Uh, what are you going to use the time machine for? Mm. Kill Hitler? What else? Uh, mm-hmm. So it was. That was the beginning of the idea. Um, and then later in the book, it's not really about Hitler. He turns mm. up in one or two panels, uh, but it's about um, this main character and um, his, um, his girlfriend and the relationship uh, between those two.
1: Mm. And it's, it's interesting that, you know, that seems a very sort of classical science fiction trope, but because it's almost too familiar, even if people haven't sort of really explored it in books, it's sort of the scenario that then does lead itself to comedy. I don't know if you're... Um, a fan of the TV show Doctor Who, but there's an episode in that that was called Let's Kill Hitler, but it ends up with them actually just locking him in a cupboard. You know, So I guess it's the uh, expectation of something happening and then actually the result being unexpected that works really well of, as a, a story-driving technique.
2: Yeah, I'm afraid I, I haven't seen <laughs> Doctor Who.
1: Or... But in terms of coming up with an idea that maybe the audience might have an expectation and then you sort of subverting that. That's obviously something, or it seems obviously to be something that you enjoy doing as a storyteller.
2: Yeah, um, the way the story goes, it shouldn't be too obvious. Um, So you try to find uh, some way to surprise the reader. And um, I also try to give uh, the ending some weight um Mm. so if the if there's a funny story you could try to have an ending that's maybe more like sad Uh, Mm. or if you have a sad story you could have a funny ending
1: Mm. well one of the um short stories that i was reading Mm. of yours this morning just to sort of familiarize uh, myself with some of your shorter works was in um, Low Moon, where uh, a character keeps on killing off this woman's husband uh, in various different ways, sort of like Groundhog Day style. And the following morning, he always comes back from the dead. And again, it's like, how is this story going to end? And um, I won't spoil it for people who haven't read it, but it's sort of, again, quite unexpected. Do you sometimes set yourself a challenge saying, this is the kind of story that I want to tell, and I want to sort of subvert certain types of storytelling tropes? But then, because you've set yourself that challenge, you think, "How am I going to end this in a way that is surprising?"
2: Um, no, I don't really think about that too much um, uh, before I start. Um, it's very much, um, yeah, improvised, uh, mm. and I think there's subconscious work, <laughs> uh, I suppose. Um, but that, yeah, that story was um, um, very much like a film noir story, mm. but uh, using cavemen instead. Um, so, yeah, you try to put in, if even if you use some well-known genre, to put in some new element uh, to the story. Mm.
1: You don't ever start with the uh, punchline and work backwards, then.
2: Mm, no, that's one way of working. But uh, so far, I mostly um, I begin with the ending. Sometimes I begin with uh, the middle. If mm-hmm. I have uh, an idea for how the story should be in the middle, and then work in two directions mm. uh, towards the end, but also from the beginning to the middle.
1: Mm. <laughs> You're published um, in France and you're published in America and I guess uh, those are two markets that gave you international recognition as a creator. Um, In terms of French comics, we have this idea, and you mentioned it earlier, of the kind of 48-page album of a certain size and format. When you found a French publisher and you found a French audience, um, was there anything about your work that they found challenging because it was different to the usual sort of French style of publishing?
2: Um, No, I don't think so. Um, uh, The first book I did for a French publisher, um, I specifically made for the French market. Um, So it's a classic 48-page French Mm album is sort of like a Hitchcock uh, story. Um, so I made, uh, I think, five of those uh, albums. Um, mm-hmm. But then, now in France, you have the same graphic novels as you have in the rest of the world. Uh, and it's uh, become a lot more common to work in those um, like a smaller format yeah. uh, and you can have as many pages as you want to tell the story mm. so um, I think it gives you a lot more freedom to um, use however many pages you, uh, you want and also the, um, the small format with the four panel grid uh, visually just uh, appeals to me
1: mm. well in a way it seems to even though it's sort of relatively square as opposed to sort of um, a landscape strip, it refers back to sort of classical newspaper cartoons in the sense that there are four panels that tell a single part of a story as much as a page is sort of part of a story, because a lot of your pages almost work as a little vignette within a longer story. Is that because of an interest um, in sort of economical storytelling? Or again, is it just the improvisation allows the story to have certain beats and sometimes it works on a page and sometimes it extends over a number of pages?
2: Yeah, once in a while um, that happens that each page is uh, one sequence or two pages is one sequence. And to work in that way, it makes it a lot easier to edit mm. the pages after. Um, that could be a problem in the French albums. If you <laughs> if you had drawn 30 pages and then you find out that on page 24 there is a two-panel sequence that doesn't work, <laughs> you can take it out, but then you have to put something else uh, there Um, And with the four panel um, pages, it's a lot easier to, you don't have to start at the beginning, you can work, you can start in the middle and uh, just to work in sequences and then put those sequences in the correct order Mm. at the end.
1: Mm. So you've done comics about werewolves, about musketeers, about time travelers, now you're You've done a autobiographical graphic novel. What other projects might we expect from you in the future?
2: Um, yeah, uh, uh, there are still some genres I haven't done yet, I guess. Uh, but um, I enjoyed doing this story, um, uh, a more personal story, um, even though I'm not going to... Starting only autobiographical comics mm. um, i did after walking this um, after, after walking the Camino in Spain i did um, a walk, I did a Wicklow way in Ireland and mm. I made a short story about fifty pages about that, which should be in the next book i hope okay. and, uh, uh, which should be i think <laughs> Three maybe four uh, stories uh, as as one book.
1: Okay, and will it be contrasted with non autobiographical stories?
2: Yeah, the the other stories are uh, yeah fiction. Um, so yeah, in that sense,
1: it's it won't be the first book of yours. That's an anthology. Um, do you kind of dictate the collections of short stories or are they put together by your publisher?
2: Uh, now it's up to me mm. to, um, to put the stories together. And um, yeah, there's, um, there are different um, short stories. So a collection doesn't necessarily have to have a theme. Mm. Um, it's just whatever stories I have done from um, that period and then try to put it together in a way that works as a collection.
1: Okay. So you don't approach them in the way of an editor or a curator thinking, oh, well, I've got three or four stories that tell a certain kind of idea. Maybe I need to put an extra one in that's more humorous or more serious or has more action is it more just the kind of period of storytelling you 're going through that dictates what 's in the collection
2: um, yeah, I think uh, i don 't have an editor, uh, so I just um, uh, do the stories I want to and then just send it off to the to the publisher. Um, I think that can work in both uh, ways. Maybe if I had uh, an editor, he or she would say, yeah, maybe you should uh, change this or put in another story here. Mm. Uh, But, um, yeah, it's uh, all me. (laughs) So, uh, yeah.
1: (laughs) Cool. Many of Jason's anthropomorphic comics and graphic novels are available from American publisher Fantagraphics. To find out more about his backlist, visit their website Fantagraphics FANTA Graphics dot com and for more information about the Lakes International Comic Art Festival where I recorded my interview with Jason, please go to comicartfestival dot com and the Lakes International Comic Art Festival returns this year in Kendall from the fifteenth to the seventeenth of October. Before that, there are a few comic book events taking place online. And if you're a fan of this show, then effectively there's a live episode of Panel Borders taking place next Monday as the returning Cartoon County event moves online while we're still suffering from COVID lockdown. And I'll be talking to cartoonist Jenny Robbins about her graphic novel, Biscuits. For more information about the event and to book tickets, please go to CartoonCounty.com and the Q&A takes place online at 7.30pm on Monday, 8th of March. The following week is this month's LDC Comics, where cartoonists Gareth Brooks, Eleanor Davis and Joel Christian Gill will be talking about their work to an online audience and you can get a free ticket by going to LDComics.com Thinking further ahead, another one of this autumn's festivals is this year's Thought Bubble Festival in Harrogate, which runs from the 8th to the 14th of November. Chuck Palaniuk, David Ayer, Raphael Albuquerque, Zainab Akhtar, Cecil Castellucci, Becky Clunan, Gail Simone, Scott Snyder, Ram V, Babs Tarr, and G. Willow Wilson, among others, will be appearing at this international festival in Yorkshire. For more info about Thought Bubble, please go to thoughtbubblefestival.com. Panel Borders was recorded, edited, and introduced by Alex Fitch, and is a Panel Borders production. You can find all previous episodes on our blog, www.panelborders.wordpress.com, And if you're particularly interested in anthropomorphic comics, there are links to various other interviews I've recorded with creators of funny animal comics, including Brett Uren talking about his noir-themed anthology series Torso Bear, Brian Bennett and Jimmy Pearson talking about their webcomic Cogs and Claws, Boo Cook, Ian Churchill and Richard Starkins discuss Elephant Men, Australian artist Nikki Greenberg discusses her full length adaptation of The Great Gatsby, featuring animals and plants as the various characters. And Ian Culbord talks about his anthropomorphic adaptation of The War of the Worlds, Wild's End. Brian Tolbert discussing his various titles, such as Gromville and the Tale of One Bad Rat, and Kevin Eastman discussing teenage mutant ninja turtles. Find these and various other anthropomorphic comic interviews by going to panelborders.wordpress.com-category-anthropomorphic. stroke Panel Borders will be back on the first Wednesday in April, and until then, as ever, thanks for listening.
0: This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.